Coming up, we are back with another episode of the Front Page Football Podcast, our first episode in quite a while, and we're back with a bang. Former A-League goalkeeper Jared Tyson joins us. Uh, it was a fantastic chat with Jared, and without further ado, I want to get straight into it. I am your host, Christian Marchetti, and we'll be back right after this. Welcome back to another episode of the Front Page Football Podcast. We are finally back. Uh, it's been a little bit of a hiatus, uh, of course, since the A-League men's season finished. Probably been about a month or so since we've actually been back on this feed with uh, with one of our main pods. But uh, we're going to be back with a bang tonight, I reckon. Uh, I'm joined, first of all, by uh, some of our regulars on this podcast, Matt Olson. Matt, how are you going? Yeah, good evening, Christian. Lovely to be here and um, very much looking forward to uh, the guest we're about to speak to. Yep, and Antonis Pagonis, of course, as usual. How are you? Yeah, good to be here. I think the last time we recorded the podcast was actually live from your house. So it was. it's it good was. to be on and it was these guests, <laughs> me and Matt. So it's good to be back on one of these. Yeah, and weirdly, we had probably more audio issues and technical issues actually being live than we did uh, doing it via Zoom. So, um, yeah, it's a modern modern technology for you, I guess. Um, but <laughs> I'm also very glad uh, to introduce our special guest uh, for tonight's podcast. He's a former A-League goalkeeper, also a former Australia youth international, currently applies his trade for Sunshine Coast FC, and he is uh, the very well-known goalkeeper, Jared Tyson. Jared, uh, welcome to the podcast, mate. Glad to uh, Glad to have you on. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Looking forward to to speaking with you guys tonight. Ever ever, ever been interviewed on podcasts before like this? Yeah, done a done a few podcasts. Yeah. Um, funnily enough, in my first season at Western Sydney Wanderers, um, we had a podcast uh, that just started up that season. Actually, I've forgotten what it was called, but it was uh, something similar to the Red and Black Block, and um, they ended up doing quite well in those uh, in those first few seasons. But we actually hosted. Uh, one of their one of their episodes from our house. Um, so yeah, so that done a few in my time there, um, but they're always a lot of fun. Oh, there you go. Yeah, well, was not expecting that. Um, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there you go. Um, all right, let's uh let's kick it off then. Um, I tell you what, let's uh let's just go into what what you got going on at the moment. Um, because at the moment a lot of people probably won't know this, but you're playing in the second tier. Uh, in in Queens at the moment with Sunshine Coast. Um. I guess just give us a bit of a background to kind of how that came about and uh, and how how things are going up there. Yeah, definitely. So um, I suppose I went through a bit of a transition, if you if you want to call it that. Um, I was playing uh, with Melbourne Victory um, at the end of twenty twenty one, I believe it was um, the the year that we won the Australia Cup, and uh, my wife and I were, were were both heavily pregnant. Obviously, I wasn't pregnant, but you know, as a as a partnership, we were, we were pregnant and, uh, <laughs> and, um, yeah, my daughter was due to be born in, uh, in April. So, um, we sort of went through, you know, the different decisions about what we wanted to do as a family and, and made the, the difficult call, not the difficult call, but the, the call for me to sort of step back from full time professional football to, um, to move back home here to the Sunshine Coast and, and be a bit more present and a bit more available to um, to my daughter Sky, who's now born and, and now fourteen months old. 
um, and to go back to a, a junior club that I spent a bit of time at, at, um, back in their first ever season, actually back in, in 2008, um, the Sunshine Coast Fire. And yeah, they're, um, they're playing in the second division of Queensland football at the moment. Uh, but for me, I suppose it wasn't a decision based on to come back to Queensland and play at the, the highest level I possibly could. It was very much a family, um, orientated decision. And, uh, my stepson actually, um, struggles quite a bit, um, with asthma and allergies and different things in Melbourne. So the move back to Queensland was all also very heavily based on supporting him in, in his health to, um, to yeah, come to a climate that is actually asymptomatic, which is quite nice. So, um, so yeah, a few different family things there that, that sort of forced the decision. But being back at the fire now, we're in our second season. Uh, well, in my second season back at the club and, um, you know, we, we have some, some good runs and we have some not so good runs. But, um, like I said, ultimately, you know, I'm, I'm really pleased to be back sort of giving something back to, to Sunshine Coast football and, um, and also, you know, you know, being here to, to support my family and being nice and present for, for Sky Riley and, and my wife, Sarah. Yeah, no, nah, um, absolutely. Uh, appreciate, appreciate your candor, uh, there with, with the response. Matt, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw to you because you, you're intrigued by the fact that, that Jared's actually born in Tasmania and we, we do have a Tasmanian contributor, um, uh, with us front page football, Tanner Code. And, yeah, you know, we're always hearing sort of bits and pieces here from what's going on in Tasmania and stuff. Uh, some, some good, some kind of bizarre. Um, but Matt, I'm, I'm going to throw to you because you, you mentioned this to me today that you, that you wanted to kind of, kind of ask Jared about this and, and just kind of, I guess his, his background kind of being from Tasmania, but then also kind of playing quite a bit in Queensland too. And, and now returning there, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously when, when we think of Tasmanian born Australian footballers, obviously what Nathaniel Atkinson's gone on to yep. achieve recently. He's probably top of the pile now, Jared. But uh, for yourself, I mean, do you do you have a lot of connection? Did you play much football in Tasmania at all, uh, especially as a kid? Yeah, so I, I started playing football in Tasmania. Um, uh, I would probably say that Tasmania is a very AFL strong state. Um, so certainly, my experience as a junior growing up was my brother played Aussie rules. I played a year of Aussie rules, but, um, you know, played football, obviously all the way through from, um, from under sixes, uh, Cambridge United was my, my junior team. Um, and I probably played for them for three, I, think I had three seasons with them before I moved, um, moved to Queensland to start um, living here on the Sunshine Coast. So, um, I didn't have a lot of experience playing in, in Tasmanian football and certainly didn't do um, any of my representative football in the, in the Tasmanian area. But, you know, I've through, through my journey in the A League, obviously it's a, a bit of a rare commodity to, to hear of a, a Tasmanian footballer that's, that's gone on to, to play at the professional level. Um, you know, I think of Jeremy Walker, who I had the pleasure of, of playing with at, at Green Gully for a number of seasons is another one. Um, and I think there's been a, you know, some other goalkeepers that have, that have gone on to, um, to play professionally from, from the area as well. So, um, I always try to, to, um, keep my ear close to the ground about what's going on. Awesome that you've got teams like Davenport and those sort of guys that are always representing the state in the, um, in the Australia Cup. And, uh, I think with this development of a national second division, you know, being, you know, flaunted about, um, starting up in, in future years. That, um, I think it's a, an absolutely fantastic opportunity to try and get a Tasmanian team into, into a national competition, which I think it's, um, not just deserves, but I, I think it would be great to see for them. 
would you? Uh, yeah, would you, um, you go, mate. No, no, it's all good. It's all, I was just going to follow up because would you would you be in favour of or would you have any particular insight to you know how a Tasmanian team would set up from scratch at the at the professional level? Would you did you see it as feasible? Um, look, I, I think it, these sort of things always come back to population, unfortunately. Um, I think you look at the, the major cities around Australia or the, the clubs that do well, and there's always a population behind them. You know, more often than not, you probably look at maybe Central Coast as maybe a, um, uh, as something that goes against that, that rule, um, as sort of not regional, but outside of the major CBD of Sydney. Um, that have gone on to do, to do quite well. But I suppose Tasmania is always going to have, I think they've got a population of 400,000, maybe between four and 500,000 people. Um, and for a club to really survive on the nationals scale, you really need consistent, regular backing from your community. Um, I would like to think that given the fact that the, the state doesn't really have, um, a national um, you know, a, a football team certainly in a, in a national competition that they would see this as their opportunity to really get behind it. Um, and I certainly wouldn't see them doing any worse than say, you know, it's unfortunate to say, but maybe Brisbane Roar of, of, of recent years, um, with their crowd figures or, you know, um, Newcastle Jets at times with, with some of their, their figures. So there are, there are teams in the national bodies at the moment that are really struggling, um, with their numbers. Um, and I certainly wouldn't think that any team that came in um, to a national competition from Tasmania would would do any worse from that, um, because I think they'd be really quite pleased to have um, a competition um, or some sort of identity in those competitions. And I feel like Tasmania is a bit like us, me and Christian here in South Australia, that small community that gets around each other and like they'd be very proud of those players and they'd want to go out there and back them, especially the junior clubs and things like that. Now, we've had the two expansions, MacArthur, Western United, and they've confirmed kind of that Canberra and um, another New Zealand side, the next one's in. Are you, I guess, a bit disappointed that Tasmania hasn't been in the reckoning for these positions. And again, hoping this national second division, no bid has made, I guess, this end stage. Are you hoping, I guess, this changes over the next few years? Yeah. Um, I, I suppose I've got the experience of having been involved at Gold Coast United, which was an expansion team that failed. Um, and I'm sure that that experience um has made you know whoever's in in charge of of making these decisions now uh whether it's premier leagues um you know the australian premier leagues or if it's football australia or, or whoever it is that makes these final decisions would um would go into these decisions with a lot of the 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 wrong decisions of the past at their forefront uh, the forefront of their minds. So I'm sure they look at the, the whole picture and they look at a, a Tasmanian team and maybe look at the, the infrastructure that's there, maybe look at the financial models that are there. And I think that's probably a big thing is can a team sustain the, the financial requirements of a professional competition, not just for the next three, four, maybe five year plan. Don't show us a, a five year plan. Show us that you can do it for the next hundred years, you know, you know, as, 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 absurd as that sounds but um that's really where we're at i think with the gold coast united situation it's 
probably similar to a lot of NPL clubs where, okay, they're backed by a single financial, you know, entity. So it's a single person that has all the money. Um, and yeah, they might be pumping the money in at the moment and it's all looking good like Clive Palmer did. But, you know, you get to a point where, you know, maybe that person wants to move on. Maybe that person goes through some, some troubles or, you know, they want to go and invest elsewhere. Then what happens to, to that club? It basically falls out, um, from underneath itself, like Gold Coast United did. And, um, and it would be such a shame, uh, for any national second division or A-league clubs for that to happen in the future. So potentially they, they looked at the Tasmanian model at the moment and thought of the, the financial side of things or the, um, you know, the infrastructure, all those sorts of things weren't there. Like it's all well and good for us to say it's a community based club. It's a community area. If they had a team, they would come out and support it. That's all well and good. But until they do and until that finance enters the, the club's accounts, how are they going to get themselves operational and how are they going to, um, to, to, to be a sound option to, to be accepted. So there's all these things that you have to work through. Do I think that Tasmania can, can have a team in a national competition in the future? Absolutely. Um, would I love it to be football in the A League or the national second division? Yes, absolutely. Um, would I go down there and play? Um, I'll have to ask my wife, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I would certainly like to see that happen for Tasmania. I'm just going to give, um, I'm just going to give Jared a little bit of a break from answering all these questions about Tasmanian expansion. It feels like we're treating him like he's the football Taz, like CEO or something, taking questions <laughs> on the, nah, but, um, it, it's actually an interesting thing about your career is that you've weirdly been kind of, um, had this correlation with all these kind of expansion teams in the A-League, um, because there's Gold Coast. Then you had stint at North Queensland Fury when, when they were in it. And then you were an inaugural signing, of course, for, for the Wanderers. And that's, Obviously, a bit more of a positive um, stint there. But just starting off talking about, you mentioned Gold Coast there and then also North Queensland Fury. I mean, when you kind of reflect back and you look at like those two, I guess, I guess franchises in, in a sense, you know, back, back in the day and stuff, how, how, you know, what are your feelings kind of as to how that, how, how you kind of felt there playing, but then also how it kind of bottomed out with, with both, with both uh, expansion sides? Yeah. Um, if I can go one step further and, and sort of give you an insight into what I wanted my football career to look like. Um, you know, when I was a young kid, um, you know, at the Sunshine Coast Fire many, 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 many years ago. Um, and I was on the, you know, I just, um, agreed to my national youth league contract with Gold Coast United. And that was my stepping stone into professional football. Um, my dream was to be a one club player. So, you know, to, to be a John Terry, to be a, a Lee Broxham, to, you know, to basically go into an A-League club or to go into a professional club and, and, you know, be there my entire career. That was, that was genuinely my dream. So, um, obviously worked my way into the first team in my first year there. Um, started getting some opportunities, as you rightfully say, ended up going on a, on a couple of loan deals. I went on two loan deals to North Queensland Fury. Um, during their existence and, and enjoyed those, but, you know, Gold Coast was still very much my home. And, um, and then in the third season, got my opportunity to, to, to claim the number one jersey and, um, after Glenn Moss's injury and, and did that and had been promised a, a contract extension beyond that third year. And I was like, okay, great. This is my, this is my dream coming true. I live in one of the best cities in the world on the Gold Coast. I'm playing professional football. My dream, like it doesn't get any better than this. Um, and then obviously, um, 
Clive got a bit too big for his boots and um, the club went down. And then if I can give you a quick little snapshot of what my career looked like five years later, but um, I went to the AIS on scholarship um, and that program has since closed down. Gold Coast United has closed down. North Queensland Fury has closed down. Um, yeah, I went to Western Sydney Wanderers for two years, but then moved on to, to go and play in Hong Kong. Um, and then whilst I was there, that club closed down. Um, so I came back to, to Perth Glory. But, you know, if you look at my career at that point, four of my first five professional clubs all shut down. Um, so you go from wanting to be a one club player to, to not really having a choice to move someone, on. someone must have heard. A little Jared Tyson say that I want to be a one club player and just <laughs> yeah. So you go from wanting to be a one club player to to having to continually go through these these club shutdowns. Whether it was like I said in Hong Kong, the owner just wanted to invest his money elsewhere, so he left, um, and that was all of us gone. Um, Clive Palmer obviously had his his license revoked, and that was all of our um, our jobs gone. North Queensland Fury the same. Um, FFA pulled the license, all the jobs gone. Um, and it, and it's so difficult to be in a career that is contract to contract. And at that time, pretty much, I think it was something crazy. Like the majority of contracts in the A-League at that time were one year. So everyone was just stressing the whole time. What's going to happen in six months time? What's going to happen in three months time? Am I going to be out of a job? What to do? So there was, there was absolutely no security in the profession at that time. Um, and to consistently have to keep thinking, oh, what am I going to do now? And keep going out and grinding and trialing and trying to find another spot and, you know, having relationships fall down because, you know, you had to move or this or that. It's, it's a, it's a brutal thing to go through. And it was tough to go through it at Gold Coast. It was tough to have to go through it at, you know, um, North Queensland Fury as well. Um, so it's difficult. It's really difficult. And I think that's why the FFA have to, sorry, Football Australia have to get these expansion clubs right because, um, when they get it wrong, um, it's just, it's horrendous. Um, not just for the fans of the clubs, but the staff and the players who are all, you know, basically jobless overnight. I'm going to butt in here and make this a bit lighter because I I like your one club comment because it feels like where you've gone. I, I love, hey, Antonis, I loved how you mentioned John Terry as his first example. <laughs> I'm a Chelsea fan. So, uh, I'm going to ignore that. <laughs> but I like that comment because it feels like where you go, you really go your way to getting like this affinity with the fans. And you brought up the example with the... Uh, uh, Wanderers podcast being recorded at your house. Is this something like, I guess, one of your values that you feel like you need to go out of your way to, I guess, get the fans on your side? Or is that just your character? Can you just explain that side of it? Because it feels like it's something that you do well wherever you go. I I would just say that I buy in. Um, and that's the sort of player I am. You either get 100% of me or you get none of me. Um, and no matter where I've gone in my career, whether it was A League, whether it was overseas, whether it was, um, you know, MPL, what, or even now playing in the second division of, of Queensland football. Um, if, you know, if I'm going to join your club, you're going to get either a hundred percent of me or you're going to get none of me. Um, and that's really important. So I, I think, you know, like you say, you know, different things with the, the fan groups. I think that was just part of it. Um, in terms of the fans naturally 
wanted a connection to the team um, and certain clubs obviously more than others so particularly Western Sydney Wanderers and you know I was always happy to to be involved I didn't sort of go out of my way to um, to, to create opportunities but where you know I was asked something that was you know reasonable and um, and practical I, I was always happy to say yes because you know in terms of being a footballer you you actually, you actually don't work that, that much. Um, you know, you, you go to training for a couple of hours in the morning. Um, <laughs> but the majority of your time is, you know, recovering or it's that, you know, living that proper lifestyle. So you do have a fair bit of spare time to, um, to be involved in those sort of activities or, um, events that can actually make a big difference for, for the team. So, um, yeah, I was always happy to, to be involved and, um, with, with different fan, you know, events or engagements. And um, I certainly got, uh, you know, everything that I put in, I certainly got back in spades in return from from them. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the, uh, the AIS, sorry, uh, before. And now Matt, he recently did an interview with Mustafa Amini, who brought up the AIS, who, and Mustafa, of course, came through the AIS as well. Um, you, you mentioned there, obviously, how it's obviously closed down and stuff now. what What's your kind of thoughts on... You know how obviously that that kind of ended up, you know, uh, going away. Did you do you feel like it had, you know, a massive uh, influence on on the development of of Australian talent, kind of, um, you know, in the last ten years and stuff? Or um, because I know Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, but I know Mustafa kind of mentioned about, you know, how maybe he was a little bit um, disappointed, I guess, that that the IAS had kind of shut down as a as a as a development kind of route. Yeah, uh, look, I, I enjoyed my year there. Um, it was an under twenties program. Um, so it was basically the under 20 national team, the young Socceroos at that point. Uh, so we basically lived together. We trained, you know, two, three times a day, um, with each other. Um, uh, it was a pretty full on program and they brought everyone in from, um, across the, the different states and we had 20 something odd, odd plays in there. Uh, in terms of, you know, creating plays it's certainly got a great track record um throughout its history of, of producing good players um but i would i would probably argue that the the model was maybe a bit outdated now um so just picking 20 kids from across the country to go and live together for 12 months in you know in canberra um to to be our national team um and our ais program you know, probably isn't the right model these days. I think there's probably a little bit more competition for places out there. And I don't think you want to discount or exclude players um, with the current models that we have and academy systems that we have with our NPL pro, um, programs, with our A-League clubs all being involved in those NPLs now um, or lower divisions. So I think, I think it was probably time to move it on. Um, and I think the model that we have currently where A-League clubs all have their own development models and basically the national team, you know, coaches and those selection processes can actually go and watch all of the kids from all across the country on a more regular basis. And then when the national team needs to go away, you pick the players that are playing the best at that moment. But to basically say, oh, you guys are going to be it for the next 12 months, I think A was very unfair um and look i was very grateful to have that opportunity um but i think to be honest i didn't i didn't make the most of it um i think when i went in there at 17 years old 
um, the 12 months that I was there. I'd, I'd moved there from the Sunshine Coast. Um, you know, I was basically a, you know, a, a regional, you know, goalkeeper that, you know, got a lucky break, did the right thing in front of the right people at the right time and, and, um, got a scholar, uh, a trial, took my chance again and, and got my spot. Um, but yeah, probably felt mentally I wasn't, um, wasn't mentally strong enough the year that I was there. And it certainly, um, helped my career and definitely gave me some benefits and, um, and strengthened me during my time there. But like I said, I, I think the current model that we have might, may not be perfect, but it's certainly a, uh, a very good model in terms of developing players and selecting players on a more fair basis. I'll be honest with you, Jared. I, I rarely, if ever, have heard anyone in Australian football say that say that the AIS is something that that you know its removal was a good thing. I think yeah. <laughs> when when we look at sort of you know like because the AIS the, the whole reason it's there is obviously mostly for the Olympics and funding funding through that, and it's a lot to do with funding and whatever else is available. Football mm. is, of course, an Olympic sport. One that we're kind of sort of re-emerging. Um, our successes into Olympic football that, that weren't afforded to us, ironically enough, the time that the program was actually there, right? So, so from that perspective, I think that there's a conversation there that, you know, football won't necessarily have its place solely on Olympic funding and whatever. But the one thing that, uh, you know, I've, I've gained from a lot of players over, over time was that what the AIS did do was it gave you a gateway to a lot of, uh, you know, nutritional practices, a lot about your discipline that you wouldn't otherwise learn and that wouldn't be afforded to you just at your normal club. So given that there was this sort of exclusivity to it, and I understand what the reasons that you're mentioning as to why those were a negative thing, but for that to actually be put in place for our footballers that wouldn't otherwise be given to them, was, is that not an asset that we really need to be sort of looking towards arranging for national youth teams? Um, yeah, I think it's a model that A-League clubs um, should be adopting in their academies. Like I said, I don't think that you should, um, in January, pick 20 players from across all of Australia and only give those 20 players nutritional and sports science assistance. I would even argue that the best 20 players across the country are the ones that don't need the additional nutritional assistance, the additional physiotherapy, because if they're the best of the best, then they've already got the mindset and the mentality to be doing that. And that was certainly the, the case for me. I mean, I'm a qualified chef. You know, nutrition was part of my lifestyle back then. Um, but I think the, the benefits of the AIS, I would love to see taken on board by all of the A-League clubs. Um, and given like A-League clubs are working with their academies from, what is it under nines all the way through to this, the, the, the youth programs and into the seniors. So I would love to see instead of just 20 kids from an under 20 age group, given that opportunity, I would love to see A league clubs take on board that nutritionist. And certainly my experience, um, my most recent experience, obviously with Melbourne victory is they're ticking that box. You know, we had. Um, they've implemented a full nutrition program where we're fed after, after training sessions, which, you know, is always the first thing binned by early clubs because it's a budgetary thing. You don't get food because it costs money. Um, Melbourne Victory are ticking that box. They have a nutritionist on site, um, to support players with their nutritional needs. They have, you know, a, a fantastic medical staff there that will see you any, any time of the day or night. You pick up the phone. They're there for you. 
Um, and certainly there'll be other clubs that do that as well, but that was my experience. And certainly at Western Sydney Wanderers, actually, it was a little bit like that as well, but they were very much in a development phase of their club's history. So, um, you know, they were building the, the, the new training facilities. So funds were being shifted elsewhere. But do I think that the AIS is, is needed on a single national team basis? You know, on, honestly, I, I don't think so. I think the, the benefit to football as a whole would be that A-League clubs take that responsibility and give those services to the under nines, to the under tens, to the under 11s. And a single club can then have that professionalism drilled into young kids through these services from eight years old all the way through until they become A-League players. The AIS had the opportunity to do it to 20 kids for a 12-month period um, when they're 19, you know, 18, 19 years old. And like I said, you know, you want to be developing those habits of professionalism much earlier. Um, and I think the AIS really missed that opportunity. Um, and through that as well, you also have a much fairer um, avenue to select players for national teams because you're looking at, at the NPL games of all the different clubs. You're looking at the A-League. And, and just my final point as well is, you know, at the, at the time of the AIS, um, if you looked at the A-League, how many young kids were actually playing in it at that point? You know, Tommy Orr was probably a breakout. You know, people were talking about um, Taj Minicon as being a breakout, you know, um, but there weren't a whole lot of young players playing in it. The problem, I, I would have to look at the research, but maybe the, the average age of A-League clubs in that time were, were much older and opportunities for young kids weren't quite there. Whereas I think there'd probably be a, a lot more younger kids getting opportunities these days. We, we keep, um, talking about the boys, the young boys coming through at Adelaide United. Um, you know, so young players now have the opportunity to be playing on the, on, you know, the A League, um, or in the A Leagues and, um, and can be selected for national teams through that system. I think I just saw Antonis perk up when you mentioned Adelaide United as, as one of the leaders <laughs> for, for youth development. Um, <laughs> but, uh, just uh, let's let's talk more about your time at the Wanderers because I think that's I, I I don't know maybe I'll put this to you is that probably the one kind of stint that you look back on the, the initial stint at the Wanderers anyway uh, with the ACL win and and things like that and you just think wow that was you know that that was definitely the highlight of my career. Um. Ah. Uh... I would I wouldn't say it was the I wouldn't say it was the highlight of my career. Um, I would say it was a very important part of my career. Um, I think the first year, you know, I went to the I went to the Wanderers thinking that I knew what professional football was all about because I'd played in the A League for you know for how many games at that point? I'd been at Gold Coast for three years. I thought that I was a professional footballer and I thought I knew what professional football was all about. And then I went to the Wanderers and worked under Tony Popovich and just had a big slap in the face. Like it was not, it was not even close. You know, Gold Coast United for all of its benefits, um, was just not run like a professional club. Um, and I didn't really, and you, you talk to any players that, that moved on from Gold Coast United to other A-League clubs. Um, and they will tell you. It, particularly the young kids, they will tell you that it just did not prepare you for what it was like at a, at a proper professional club. So it took me a lot of adjusting, um, in that first year. And I actually didn't play a game, um, outside of friendlies and, and preseason games that season. 
Um, Kovic was obviously in, um, goalkeeper of the year form and, um, and he and I worked really well together. And then the second year I started getting my opportunities, but again, Kovic was just playing so well that, you know, I just couldn't, I just couldn't get my, my finger into the team. So, um, so that was, that was difficult. Uh, we obviously had a lot of success in those first two years. Um, you know, albeit losing two grand finals, but, um, you know, I, and I certainly, um, I certainly knew my value, you know, in terms of, um, my, you know, presence around the team, my, you know, work on the training pitch. Obviously in this, in the second season, I played a couple of games in the Champions League in that run that led to the, to the win. Um, and uh, another one in the A League. So, um, you know, that was a better season, but I wouldn't say those first two years was the highlight of my career, but it was certainly the, the most important two years in terms of me understanding what it was actually like to be a professional footballer and the the expectation and all of those sorts of things so um yeah it was a very important two years it just you know we talk a lot about like a lot of coaches talk about um you know like when they win trophies and stuff they'll say you know it's the squad it's a squad game and stuff like that do you having been kind of you know played second fiddle to to Arte for for those couple years but the team's had success do you think like if, if Popper was ever saying that at that time, do you think it's like, ah, oh, yes, look, it's kind of bullshit. Like, you know, I just want to play sort of thing. Like, you know, you, you just need me here as a safety net or you actually like, I mean, you mentioned before, like you're kind of all in or you're not in. At that time though, when you see the team success, will you see the way the fans were with the Wanderers and how that just broke out as a club? Were you actually more actually, you know what? No, like this is, let's get around this. Let's get around this team and really achieve something special. Yeah. I, I think the, the best thing that, um that popper did in those first two years was um from my perspective i got the feeling like he signed the person first um rather than the player and that probably sounds really 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 strange but i feel like he that was the best squad that i'd ever played in in terms of closeness in terms of um bonds um there was just no, you know, in most other teams, there's always one or two little, you know, people in the group that you don't get along with, or there's, there's an issue there, or there's a bit of, you know, whatever in the group. But that, that squad that he put together was the best squad, I think, as a unit that I played with. Um, and, you know, I think he worked us really hard to be better footballers. And that probably showed how good he is as a manager and as a coach, because he took plays that, Okay, at that point may have been on the cusp of their um of their teams, but he had three months to put a team together and chuck them out for their first game in the A League. And um he just he signed the right people to 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 make that culture and to make that bond and um and then got us playing really good football. Um he obviously made us very fit so we could could run and keep up, but um but yeah, he he um yeah, taught us from there. So um you know, it's an interesting one as a goalkeeper because there's obviously only one position and you're always, you know, asked. And, you know, it was the case for me when, when the Wanderers won the Champions League. And, you know, you know in, in that instance, it was Dean Bazanis that was, you know, in the, in the big, you know, team huddle, you know, holding out the Champions League trophy, but he hadn't played the game at that point. And, you know, with the Australia Cup with Melbourne victory, I'd moved on at that point. And it was Matt Acton that was up on the stage, you know, lifting the trophy when he hadn't played a game. And people always ask me, oh, you know, are you annoyed that they're up there? And I'm like, well, no, you know, they absolutely 
deserve to be up there as much as, as what I did. Um, because if someone else had been the other goalkeeper during that period, maybe, you know, maybe the club wouldn't have got there. You know, it's, it's such fine margins that can turn, you know, a team one way or the other. And it's like when we won the league in, in the first season of the A League, um, with the Wanderers, um, I hadn't played a game that year, but I, I felt like I had, um, had played my part in making sure number one, that Kovic was at his best. Um, that, you know, that I wasn't ever a, a, an issue at training and, and playing my part in that role. So, um, yeah, like, like you said, you know, I, I buy into every team that I'm in and I think those clubs had players that, that truly bought in and, um, and, and made sure that they played their part, whatever that was to, to be successful. Yeah. That, what that's what, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. One day <laughs> that. I would, that, that's what I'd go around telling people. If anyone asks you about like, oh, you know, hey, Ante was unbelievable in that period. And I just say, well, look, I mean, I was the one driving him at training every day. That's yeah, 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 exactly. Everyone, everyone has to play their part no matter what it is. And if I rocked up to training every day and was having a sook and was upset and, you know, was giving Ante crap service because I had the shits or, or whatever yeah. and we didn't have a good dynamic, then, you know, it, it's very likely that things could have gone off, off the rails. So. You know, everything happens for a reason and, you know, every player, whether they play minutes on the field or not, when, when a club wins a trophy, every person in the squad, um, has played their part, um, in achieving that. So, you know, of, of all the, the trophies that, um, you know, I've been lucky enough to win, you know, I certainly, um, am, am proud of, of my part that I played in that, no matter what it was. Um, and certainly players that, um, you know, have taken over from me in, in trophies that I've won have, have deserved those um, equally as much. Think victories, victories Cup win, that's a pretty egregious one for yourself because if I remember distinctly, the Perth Glory MPL 11 went up well, against you and took you to penalties. And Tonus right? has a and question you, about this, don't you? <laughs> because, <laughs> because you, you, you single-handedly, like that was you who did that, Jared. You qualified victory for that Cup that they went on to win. Uh, we, well, yeah, we... Um, <laughs> We, so we had to qualify to get into the Australia Cup against Perth Glory. So yeah, you're right. We, we ended up playing it on neutral, on a neutral venue in Adelaide. Um, and yeah, we, the game finished 1-1. Um, and we went to a shootout and I made two saves. Um, actually mi- <laughs> missed, missed a penalty of my own in that, um, <laughs> in that shootout. But, um, you're talking to a Western uh, Australian here, by the way. <laughs> I'm still filthy about it to this day because Gio, Gio Colley, that was his, one of his first senior games and he was captain that day. Oh, I was filthy, mate. Yeah. Yeah. No. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's interesting. Like the, the Melbourne victory, I think used 39 or 40 players throughout the Australia Cup campaign that year. Um, so we played six games in total. I played the first three and then Kelliver played the, the last three. Um, but yeah, those first three games when we're obviously going to Adelaide, we played all of the games away, Melbourne Knights, uh, sorry, um, Gold Coast Knights, Adelaide City, um, Perth Glory and wherever else we, we had to go. But, um, it was almost like we had, um, and, and a cup squad and an A-League squad and Popper was just, you know, sending those squads away. And, um, we were obviously doing so well in the, in the cup and, um, you know, grinding out results. And we had pretty much our entire youth team playing in that. We might have had me, Robbie Cruz, um, um, Marshan. Oh no, he didn't play actually. Um, I think Rojas might have played a game. 
we had like we had a couple of of senior players go in just to to give them some direction and some some support but it was basically the youth team that that ran through that competition up until the quarterfinals or semifinals um at which point the senior boys took over but you know we used to laugh at training all the time because we had a squad of 40 training full time pretty much and um and it was always like the A-League boys that, that kept on trying to get into the cup team to, to come away on those, those trips. It wasn't like the cup team was trying to get in the A-League squad. All of them wanted to come and join us on these, um, Australia Cup away days. It was, it was brilliant. I just want to go back on that penalty because it is such a <laughs> weird situation because, you know, you get called up to help this team by a coach who obviously trusts you and knows what you have to provide, trusts you enough to be one of those penalties as a goalkeeper and respectfully that penalty was more like a goal kick than anything <laughs> else it felt like did you feel i guess that you had uh, i guess you needed to make up for it after that no to, try to, no, like, look, to be honest with you i um i can't remember the last time i lost a penalty shootout like penalties are just something i, I feel comfortable with i knew i was going to make saves in that shootout particularly against the kids that were playing for, for perth glory um so we went into the team huddle after the game and Popper Popper picked all of the, the penalty takers. So no one put their hand up. Popper just said, right, these are the these are who are taking it. And he said, number one, this, number two, this, number three, Tyson, number four, this, number five, this, done. That was it. There was no discussion. You guys are taking them. So I was like, oh. I was like, did he did he just say my name? I had no I had no intention of, of taking a penalty. Um I never practiced penalties. I just assumed that they were easy to, to, to hit in any way. So I go, okay, well, that's, that's fine. He's, he's picked me. No worries. Um, so anyway, I, I made it a save. I think I saved, I saved their third and then I stepped up and I put the ball down and then I looked up and I thought, bloody hell, this is a long way away. <laughs> like <laughs> it's, it is mentally very, very difficult penalty. It was the first time I've actually stepped up and gone, okay, I've actually got to score this. Um, but I had the confidence of, um, having just saved one to go, okay, well, no matter what happens, like we're not going to go behind. Um, and I stepped up and I said, I'm just going to strike this like I'm knocking a goal kick, um, into that side of the goal because the, the keeper was diving the same way every single time. So I said, I'll just knock it in there and I'll, and I'll score. Um, and I ended up, lacing it quite nicely but it just faded a bit and actually grazed the point i know simon hill made it sound on the commentary like it went it went to the moon and back but you know <laughs> simon hill was not at the game there was no commentary team at the game so he was only watching it on his tv from in his bed at home um, while he was commentating but it was it was much closer um and then i missed and i was just like oh, oh okay so <laughs> So, so Jared, to answer to answer your, your question, no, I, I didn't feel like I needed to make up for anything. Um, you know, at that point in my career, it was like, okay, I missed. I'll just make another save, and that'll be that. So I stepped up, obviously saved the next one, and we went on to to win the game. So yeah. In terms of in terms of like you being in the starting eleven, was that your most memorable win as a footballer? Um, no, my most memorable win would have been my debut for the Wanderers, um, away to Perth Glory in my second season there. So obviously <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd um 
you know, obviously I was a, a pretty well-known player at the Wanderers by the second year because of, like you say, all the stuff that was, you know, I was helping with the fans and all that extra extra stuff. So I was a pretty well-known player. And um, I think everyone was sort of hoping and wondering when I would actually get a chance to play. So, you know, when Kovic hurt his hand in the lead up to that game, and um, naturally we had a Champions League game coming up quite soon after. And he, he told me, you're, you're, um, you know, the boss told me that, you know, you'll be playing this game against Perth. Um, and I was like, okay, great. And, but it was, that was a nervous one because I was like, okay, well, there's a lot of expectation. There's a lot of people that want me to do well. I need to go out and do well. And I actually had, you know, quite a good game from, from memory. Uh, we won that game 2-0. Um, the infamous, uh, William Gallas double air swing was, uh, happened in, in that game as well. So, um, uh, so yeah, it was. That's one of those ones that's saved in the memory bank. You just got to say William Gallas and then bang. Yep. There's, there's the visuals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so that was the game. Um, but obviously yeah, a two nil win. So clean sheet on debut. Um, a lot of weight off the shoulders, feeling really good about myself. And, um, and that obviously helped me, you know, progress with where I went from there. So that was, that was definitely um, the most memorable game that I played. And I just want to go back yeah. to Christian's question from before, because yeah. he asked you about your career highlights and you said it wasn't that Champions League, obviously. What would be your, I guess, career highlight looking back? What would be your top moment as a professional footballer? Um, yeah, wow. Well, um, I, to be honest, I don't know if I've got, if I've got one that really stands out. Like, um, you know, playing in the Champions League was, was quite special, but, um, I think it was kind of my, my experience of that was kind of tainted because I wasn't, I'd obviously moved on after the quarterfinals and I wasn't there to actually lift the, um, the trophy and be a part of that, that success at the end. Um, so it was great to have, to have won it, but not being there was sort of like a bit of a, a sour note on that. Um, you know, playing, playing that, that debut game, obviously for the Wanderers was quite special. That's probably, you know, I'd obviously played, you know, 18 or 20 games for, for Gold Coast at that point, but, um, that for me was almost like my debut in professional football. Um, and it, you know, went really well. So I was happy about that. Um, I think. Playing in Hong Kong, as weird as that sounds as well. Like I never had the, the, the passport or the, the visa situation to be able to go and play in Europe. So I just assumed that my career had to be in Australia. And when the opportunity came up to go and play in Hong Kong and that experience playing in Asia, um, was really quite special. And I, I really, really loved that season that I played there. And to be honest, probably would have happily stayed there the rest of my career. If the, the club hadn't, um, hadn't folded so the owner could go and invest in horse racing or something like that. But is that, um, can I, sorry, can I just jump in here? Because I, I, I swear, I can't, I can't remember the amount of times we've, we've spoken to maybe either through some articles on our website or podcasts, guys who have played in Asia and stuff. And it's like, there, there's always some quirky story. There, there's something always. And, uh, remember, yeah, I remember like talking to Michael Maroney once about when he was playing in China and there was something to do with like, and then they appointed like, um, some, yeah, like, can't remember, but some guy basically had no coaching experience. Just they appointed him as like a head coach for a little bit and this sort of stuff. And just like, just all this bizarre stuff happening. So, so you're telling me that there's no, there's no, um, no stink, I guess, from the, uh, from the stint in Hong Kong. Nothing, nothing, uh, that 
bizarre like that said, kind of stood out. Look, all of that stuff happened, um, and I loved it. Honestly, I loved it. Like it was. Um, <laughs> um, I, I don't think it's anything to get upset by. Like you go there for that experience as well for that. So don't go to Asia and then when the the manager comes in and goes, oh. You know, I put 50 grand on you guys to win today, so don't screw it up. You know, you've got to, you know, you just got to take that. I mean, Clive Palmer did that at Gold Coast United. It's not anything new. He came in on, on round one of the A-League season in our first year and goes, oh, I put, you know, 50 grand on you guys to win the season undefeated. You know, so how about that pressure on your back um, on day one? But um, yeah, if you go if you go to Asia, that that's the sort so of this stuff. Is a, this is a tough podcast for Clive Palmer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I've, I've but, heard some stories that I'd like to run by you just on that. But that's... <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, in terms, in terms of Asia, like you can't go there and think that it's going to be on the same professionalism and the, on the same sports science basis and the same coaching credentials as what you get in, the, in Australia or in Europe. It, it's just not, not going to happen. So, um, and that was probably my issue when I went to India, um, is that, um, I didn't enjoy it as much. And, um, and then obviously it got really nasty at the end of, of India. And I ended up having to, to, to terminate my own contract to, to come back. So it can go too far. But in terms of, of Hong Kong, the, the, the craziness was on that perfect scale, um, that made it really enjoyable. Um, and, uh, and, and I loved my, my life football balance there. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, my, what Matt? Any any follow ups about about this or? Oh, um, I mean, in, in terms of the Asia stuff, no. But and I, I I feel bad because I don't actually remember the source, but I just remember there being like an interview on one of those um, one of those comedy shows that they had on Fox back in the day, um, like the back page or something. And there was a former Gold Coast player talking about how Clive Palmer, <laughs> Clive Palmer, sat down with a bunch of players and executives. And he was telling them that he created a formation called the Pineapple that he that he was going to get Gold Coast United to play with. Do you does that does that story ring any bells to you? Because it's something that I've been thinking about for very many. The Pineapple. No, I remember. Um, I remember Miron Blyberg. Um, oh man. I mean, how long have we got on this podcast? Oh, mate, as long <laughs> as you want. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, Clive Palmer did pick the teams at times. Like he did tell Miron who had to play and who didn't. Um, that's definitely true. In terms of what formation they had to play, um, I don't know. But I, I think maybe where this pineapple situation has come from is maybe Miron Blyberg's lizard system. Have you, have you heard Not about familiar lizard? with it? No, please, please expand. Okay, so <laughs> we were playing Adelaide United away. Um, and we'd worked all week on a, on a particular system and a, on a particular formation, on a particular style. All the boys were, were down pat with it. We woke up, um, in the morning. It was on match day and we're just going through our normal process. And then we had our team meeting and Miron walks into the, <laughs> into the, the room to give the team talk about all the tactics and go, and he goes, boys, um, last night I talked with my pillow. And, uh, and I'm changing everything. And he literally wiped the board clean and like put the players in the shape of a lizard on the board. 
and goes, this is how we're going to play today. It's the lizard system. And <laughs> I, I, and that was it. Well, the, the boys, I think, I think Jason Kalina was there that year. I think that was him. But anyway, the boys were just, you know, were like, okay, had some questions about it, but pretty much went out there and reverted back to what we had to do yeah. from the start. But yeah, we, he, he changed everything overnight because his pillow had told him to, to play the formation like a lizard. So pe- perhaps that's where the pineapple is coming from. <laughs> I don't know where to go from here. Um, that's, so what, so when we're talking lizard, are we talking like, what, like a two, one, two, one, two, or like something like that? Like, what are we, what are well, we talking numbers here? Keeper was part of it, which is like maybe the tail. And then maybe we had a sweeper, which made the tail longer. And then maybe the back four with the legs and maybe he's, Midfield diamond was the belly. We had wingers, which were the legs, and then maybe he was playing his number nine up really high for a really long head or something. Like it was along that. It just, it was, I don't know, man. I don't Dude, know. I'm crying. <laughs> <laughs> but that—that's the sort of stuff that, like I said, like I thought that I was a professional footballer at Gold Coast United, um, and then I went to to Western Sydney under you know Tony Popovich, who's you know, in my mind, one of the best coaches to ever, ever coach in Australia. And, um, and, um, yeah, it was just like this big slap in the face to like, you yeah. know, get yourself out of kindergarten. If you want to, if you want to be a professional, you know, you know, put your big boy pants on and, and let's go. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was some experience at Gold Coast. So, I tell so, you. so no, no, like echidna formations or something from Tony Popovich, or like, no, yeah, no, very, very structured, very yep. um, regimented, very, you know, based on let's be rock solid at the back and give our our forward, a, a, yep. you know, attacking plays the the freedom to go forward and do what they need to do to score goals. So, um, yeah, and you either did what he said or see you later. Yeah, yeah, you definitely, yeah, kind of get that vibe from 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 Tony. What just talk a little bit i guess about your relationship with him because obviously he brought you on board with the wanderers and then he brought you just for, for, for a bit there with victory uh as well so i guess is he someone like you always kind of in contact with is he someone you've kind of um you know seen as like a bit of a mentor kind of throughout your career as well um yeah there's certainly a lot of appreciation from me for what he's done in my football career uh i certainly learned as a defensive player as a goalkeeper i certainly learned the most in the game from him. Um, and yeah, those first two years that I spent with him, uh, I actually spent three spells with him. I, I was at the Wanderers for two years and I went away for two years. Then he's re-signed me back to the club um, for another two years, but that was just before he went to Turkey. So, um, and then obviously I went back to work with him again at Melbourne Victory. And I, I could definitely see like, a, you know, how he as a manager has sort of evolved over time. Like he's always... Um, you know, he always demands that we as players get better and you can see that he has the same demand for himself to, to improve as a manager as well. And, you know, unfortunately in, in this game, you can't always get it right and you have some good years and you have some bad years. But, um, certainly the majority, if not all of the seasons that I played under him were very successful, uh, particularly that one at, at Melbourne Victory where we, we won a trophy. Um, and yeah, like I, I'm not in touch with him outside of, outside of the game. Like we're not, you know, I don't think he's close with with any players in terms of of that. I think he he likes to keep his distance. Um, you know, he has that real sense of 
Um, I'll use the word intimidation. You know, yeah. at the same time, if you need anything from him, you could knock on his on his door, you could call mm-hmm. him, you could do whatever, and he'll do what he can to help his players um, because that's the sort of guy he is. But certainly, he um, he has a real intimidation to to his style that this is exactly what I expect of you and this is exactly how things need to be done and you either do it to that degree, if not better, or I'll get someone else who will do it. Um, and, you know, some players really thrive on on that style um, and others would definitely crumble. And uh, I think I was just somebody that that thrived under that style of, of coaching where, you know, don't give me any shortcuts because, you know, potentially mm. if there are, I'll, I'll take them and, you know, it's human nature to do that. But um, I always found that I, that he was a manager that got the best out of me. Just last one on this, because I know me and Matt, we've discussed a little bit before um, and particularly with victory season this season. And look, there was all sorts of things happening, of course, away from the pitch as well. But with Popper, there does seem to be this trend with these teams where that first season he comes in, and everything's going swimmingly well. The team's completely buying in and, and it's probably performing to its maximum. And then probably what we've seen with both Perth and now victory is then the sudden kind of drop offs. Do you, do you think that's, is there anything there that, that you think maybe, you know, you notice maybe when, when you were playing under him that, 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 um, that can kind of oh, look, it's, happen or it's not, it's not my place to, yeah. to tell Popper, you know, how to, how to do his job and, you know, he'll be the first one to say that he um, lives and dies by his decisions. But um, yeah, certainly you probably hit the nail on the head there where he comes into a, a club, whether it's the Wanderers, whether it's Perth Glory, whether it's uh, Melbourne Victory. And I think the difference that he makes on entry is so significant that mm. you, you, he just creates this environment, this buzz, this energy that that players and and even administration staff just can't, help but get infected by um and uh and i think that really goes a long way to having this immediate success um from there obviously you you get to realize the the intensity of those demands in terms of you know like i said this is what i expect of you this is how i expect it to be done i need you to do it like that or i'll bring someone else in who will do it um, and that level of demand, like I said, is not for everyone. Mm. Um, so I think he's maybe he has a, a, a habit of rotating his squad maybe a bit more frequently than I think he should. Um, I certainly at times, you know, when he cut me from the team, um, you know, back in that that first spell with him, I didn't think that I deserved to go. Um, he just goes, you know, you know, you're great, you're doing amazing, you're playing well, all these things. But you know, there's another player that we're looking at. We just want to bring him in and see what he's like. You know, there was no reason uh, behind why he was letting me go, other than he just wanted to to freshen things up and look at someone else. Um, and I think that maybe maybe comes back to. Um, to haunt him a little bit, I, I suppose, or the club or the, the field, because, um, certainly when players get let go and, you know, other players think, oh, that was a bit unfair. Or why has he done that? You know, you know, everyone then starts to get this sense, like no one's safe. It doesn't matter how well you're playing or it doesn't matter how well the club's doing at any second. You can just be gone like that because, um, so I, I think he's probably got to find a little bit, if I'm going to, you know, give any sort of insight, I'd probably say that. 
um, yeah, that his sort of rotation um, system of how he brings plays in or, or lets them go could probably use um, a little bit less, you know, frequency or aggression or, you know, in my sense, I probably felt like there was a bit of unfairness towards it, towards me. Um, but, you know, I got over it and I've signed for him again twice since. So it's not the, the <laughs> end of the day, but, um, but yeah, I think he's, you know, that side of things probably could be an issue. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Let's get, let's get to a part where, where I did want to, um, definitely ask you about. And as we get kind of towards the end, unless you've got any more crazy, um, Miron, uh, Bleiberg stories, uh, of course. Um, but yeah, which, which you probably do, uh, I, I'd imagine. Yeah. Um, but, uh, your, your goalkeeping clinic, I want to talk about a little bit as well. Uh, one goalkeeping. Um, because, um, yeah, I know. I definitely know that we got a couple like here in SA and, and there's a few kind of floating around the place. But I guess tell us a little bit more about that, uh, what you're trying to do, um, with, with kind of, uh, the goalkeepers up on the Sunshine Coast and stuff. Uh, and if you've got, had any kind of, I guess, success stories so far, guys who you've kind of helped develop, who've gone on and actually, actually done, done all right for themselves. Yeah. So I, um, to be honest, I don't, I don't think my transition out of football, um, I ever really thought that I would go down the, the coaching path. Mm-hmm. I thought I'd probably maybe go into something, something else. But, um, you know, at, at 33 years old, um, I probably still like, feel like I've got another, you know, potentially 10 years of, of, of playing in the game at, as a goalkeeper at the highest level. And, um, and with that, I really wanted to stay engaged in, in the game. Um, so I came back to the Sunshine Coast and was playing and, um, yeah, decided to, to start up a, a goalkeeping academy just, I suppose looking around the Sunshine Coast and, um, you know, we've got one of the best goalkeeping coaches and academies, um, in Australia, in my view, here on the Sunshine Coast in, in goalkeeping Australia. And it's the, the academy that, that I developed in and grew up in. It's the academy that Mitch Langrak grew up in and, and was developed and was discovered through. Um, so the Tegan Misha, who's in the, uh, the Matilda mm-hmm. squad also went through goalkeeping Australia. So, you know, over the last 20 years of that academy, they've developed, um, you know, an incredible amount of A-league goalkeepers, W-league goalkeepers and internationals. Um, and I suppose I was really inspired by that. And, um, you know, I spoke to John, who's the head coach there and he was all for it because, you know, at, um, at the moment, uh, there's probably more demand than, um, than what he can, he can mm. support. So. Um, yeah, so I started up the academy. Um, I, I work on a Monday and a Wednesday night doing three different age groups throughout that night and just basically giving them professional training. Um, you know, a lot of goalkeepers at the junior level, um, get thrown into goal and just get told, you know, just do your best. And goalkeepers feel like I just got to go into goal and, um, and when they shoot, I'll just got to do whatever I can to keep it out. Um, but there's actually a way to goalkeep. And this is what I try to teach through my academy is, you know, when you're in goal, this is how you goal keep to be successful. Um, not just in your goal, in your game, but, you know, you know, in your development and things like that as well. So that's going really well. We've got probably close, close to 40 goalkeepers in the academy now. Um, they're all doing really well. It's our first year. So we haven't had, uh, any success stories in terms of developing the next, mm-hmm. you know, um, Mark Schwartz or Matt Ryan or Jared Tyson or, Anything like that, but um, uh, but we've got a really, really exciting um, group of developing goalkeepers that I think in the next three or four years um, 
will be being looked at for, you know, whether it's A-League Academy selection, mm-hmm. national team selections, um, junior Socceroos or junior Matildas and things like that. So um, I'm really, really stoked with where we're at, um, you know, only six months into the journey and, um, and it's something that I'm, I'm definitely going to continue and, uh, and um, keep building um, to give other Sunshine Coast goalkeepers uh, the opportunity to go and live their dreams like, um, like myself. And I guess, is the mental side of goalkeeping something I guess you discuss with them? Because as a goalkeeper, you're either, there's, like you said, there's one spot, so you're, you may not be playing, you have to stay resilient, the way you're playing, you're either being pummeled with shots and it's, I guess, hard on the mind, or you have to stay alert if your team is dominating because the one moment may really matter. Is that something you have a look at? Yeah, abso- absolutely. Um, if I can give you one example, um, the amount of coaches that come to me and say, oh, um, you know, this goalkeeper or this goalkeeper just can't save. Every time they shoot, you know, and it goes just under the crossbar, it's going in. And I'm like, can the kid even touch the crossbar? And they're like, oh, well, no. Well, how do you expect them to make the save? And there's just no understanding, particularly for young developing goalkeepers, about the physicality and the actual, it's not just about skill development, it's about their physical development as well. There are some shots that the go- that developing goalkeepers literally cannot save. They literally cannot. But when these goals go in, the goalkeepers are still beating themselves up. They still feel guilty. They still feel like they've let the team down. The coaches are still telling them, why didn't you save that or why are you doing that? And And you're right, the mental side of things is huge. So like, I've got a, a holiday camp this week, uh, a two-day holiday camp where we've got some of our goalkeepers coming in and I'm actually doing a presentation with them on goalkeeper mentality and basically saying, look, for at your age group, this is what I'm looking for in terms of you as a player. So if we look at the four core goalkeeping skills of preparing, moving, dealing, distributing, this is where I want you to be in each of those four areas. If you're conceding goals up here, that's not an issue for me. Because not only will you be saving those next year or the year after, you'll be catching them. And that's when it matters. So right now in your development, this is where I want you to be at. This is what selectors are looking at. Um, and the best thing is here in Queensland is they've just, um, uh, they've just appointed the first ever full time, um, head of goalkeeping, uh, a head of goalkeeping position, which happens to be Dale Hill who um, is a good friend of mine who obviously went, um, you know, we, we trained together through the Goalkeeping Australia Academy as well um, here on the Sunshine Coast. And he's very like-minded to me in terms of, you know, we just want the kids doing this at this age, this at this age, this at this age. And if they're ticking all that at those boxes or excelling, then they're on the right pathway to go on to those future selection things. But the biggest thing that's going to stop them, even if they are ticking all those boxes, is the mentality side of things. So you're absolutely right that it's a, it's a huge part of goalkeeping and it's something that's not often taught, spoken about, or, you know, young goalkeepers aren't given that, that assistance. And it's something that I'm really keen on, on giving to all of the goalkeepers that come through one goalkeeping to give them that X factor. If you, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. Nah. Sounds, sounds really good. Um, just last one on this goalkeeping stuff. Um, what are your thoughts, I guess, at the moment on, on some of the young keepers that we got coming through? Obviously, Joe Gauchi, uh, comes to mind, Tommy Glover as well, and some others. What, what's your, I guess, overall thoughts on the, on the current crop of goalkeeping talent yeah, in, uh, was, in the um, country? Uh, 
his name escapes me. Um, the Central Coast Mariners have just announced. I think their academy Wachowski? may have just gone to um to Bayern Munich. So oh, oh no, you mean uh, Pavlicic? Yeah, Pavlicic. Sorry, yeah, yes, yeah, he's yeah. The, the captain of the um the national team at yeah the Young Soccerers as well. So, of course, yeah, um, he's obviously doing well. Um, um, look, I think it, I think it's I think it's good. I think we're always we're always going to produce good goalkeepers. I think we actually have a really good system of of developing goalkeeper coaches in Australia. Um, and I think there's some really good people involved at A League level and academy level who are passionate about goalkeeping and passionate about developing. And I, I think just naturally the the Australian attitude and personality um suits goalkeeping you know a bit of aggression a bit of um you know a bit of roughness a bit of toughness but also enough um focus and and stability to to have that good technical side so um i think we're always going to produce you know enough good quality goalkeepers um we're seeing a couple go overseas at the moment tommy glover's obviously just left as well um and uh and we've got some good quality Australian goalkeepers in the A League. So I think we're always gonna gonna have enough. Um like we always say that there's there's only one goalkeeper on the field. So how many do you actually need competing for that one spot? Um I think Matty Ryan's probably, you know, nailed that down um, you know, until he chooses to retire in terms of the soccer position. Um but um and then at A League level we've got like I said some great goalkeepers in, in each of those teams as well. Um so yeah, no, I think it, I think we're going okay. Um, you know, in terms of the next generation of goalkeeper coaches, I probably look at myself now. I, I look at some other guys that are um former professionals that are starting to come in. The, the professional footballers Australia have a have a fantastic initiative to get former A League and W League players. Um, into coaching um, and helping them with their licenses and and things like that. So um, and I think having goalkeeping coaches that have been there, done that, and had that experience is going to be really beneficial to the next generation. So um, yeah, I think we're doing okay. Yeah, nah, um, sounds sounds good. Um, okay, before we finish off, there's there's surely got to be another 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 Blyberg story in here somewhere. <laughs> there, there's 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 just got to be. I um, surely. <laughs> Uh, look, I, I I can just probably give you a, a bit more of an insight. Like, I mean, probably the the most the biggest thing that I've said here in terms of that transition for me from Gold Coast to Western Sydney was the fact that, you know, I felt that like I was a professional footballer. So, you know, Clive Palmer was was great, and I have to um I have to actually take my hat off to him because you know he gave me the opportunity to to be a professional footballer and um and all of that so there is a level of respect towards him for that but i also need to call out you know the bullshit that forced the club to to go down because you know it's very likely that certain players you know had to retire after that that never played professionally again and you know i could have missed out on on going on to, to other things at the end of that so you know probably one of the biggest things for, for him was in that first year he was flying us around on private jets he was you know we went overseas on his on his jet he he took all of our um, our partners and families out on his 150-foot super yacht down the, the Gold Coast Canals to a, an Italian restaurant, paid for our entire lunches. Um, you know, he when the Gold Coast youth team, when we, when we made the grand final in our first season, he flew all of our family down to Melbourne, gave them all tickets to the game in his private jet. And, um, 
and, and did all of that. He would come to youth team games with 50 boxes of ice creams and hand them all out to people in the crowd. Like he was, he was crazy in terms of all of that stuff that would get him in the paper, but then, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't have a physio at training because it costs too much. Wouldn't do the bare minimum, minimum medical stuff because of all of that. Um, and, and that was always a, a frustration. So, you know, certain players got injured and, and couldn't get proper treatment. We had a guy come from Korea, I think it was on trial and he ruptured his ACL at training on his trial and we had no physio. So he had to drive himself to a physio down the road to, to oh, get treatment Jesus. Yeah. and all of this. So, um, you know, that's the sort of thing that we had to go through as players in that time and, and why it was probably good that the club wrapped up, but, um, but yeah, there was, um, there's certainly going to be a book come out one day about that, um, that three year experience. And, um, you know, hopefully I'm, I'm involved in, in part of writing it. Chapter three, the lizard formation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. Uh, boys, anything else you wanted to want to ask Jared before he, uh, before you wrap up? No, all good. Interesting insights. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, for, for someone who actually didn't play that many senior games in the A-League, you still stand out as a really iconic player to me, Jared. That's all I'll say. You are a bloody legend, mate. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks for joining us, Jared. Uh, yeah. As, uh, as I think you can see by expressions on our face, it's been, a, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, and, uh, yeah. Um, make sure you follow us on, on Twitter. Um, don't know though what's, what's going on with that platform maybe today but anyway uh that's at from pg football uh also instagram at from pg uh football facebook as well front page football also on linkedin um and check out the website frontpagefootball.net um and yeah um hopefully looking to have a few more a few more guests like jared on the uh on the podcast coming up during the uh during the a-league off season as well we've got the women's world cup coming up so uh yeah a lot a lot going on um as well but uh, yeah thanks for listening and uh, until next time it's bye for now